Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash A-H-T-T. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Peace, peace. You know what it is. It's your man, S-K-Y-Z-O-O, Sky Zoo, live out the borough. And you are now watching the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast. Let's get into it, baby. Hard to Tell podcast, Dexter Henry, Brian Fonseca here for another episode. We are back and we're doing something a little bit different today. We are going to start a series called Back to the Future. This will be volume one of Back to the Future, part one, whatever the hell you want to call it. But what we are going to do in this is we are going to look at, specifically on basketball and the NBA, we might eventually do stuff with other sports, but for now it'll be basketball, looking at Teams and players at different positions and how their games would possibly translate to today's NBA. Would these players of the past play well in today's NBA? So we're going to look at some of these teams and players and break it down. Uh, Hopefully you enjoy this series and what we do with it. Brian and I have talked about it and planning it for a while. Uh, We think it's going to be pretty fun. Um, So we're trying to do some stuff around players in a different sort of way. Um, everybody's looking back, but we're just trying to add our own wrinkle to it. But that's good. How you doing, Brian? First of all, I am to be addressed as NBA champion, Brian oh, Fonseca. God. <laughs> oh, you're going to be insufferable. Oh. For those who don't know and who probably don't care, my Miami Heat in my 2K, my league uh, dynasty mode, we upended the Los Angeles Lakers after being down 2-0, won four straight, similar to how they lost to the Dallas Mavericks uh several years ago. Well, LeBron well, lost to the Dallas LeBron Mavericks. Lost to the yeah, Dallas Mavericks several years ago. Um, and we were able to get the job done. Well, I, I have to say this. I don't know what this says about me, but Brian was keeping me like updated on this series as almost as if it was something that was happening in real life. I mean, it is his life, but <laughs> that if it was like a real sporting event. And I found it wildly fascinating <laughs> as I'm like reading the comeback and he's sending me screenshots and describing situations. Anthony Davis was Will Chamberlain in that game. He gets every damn offensive rebound. But yo, the Miami Heat team, very similar to that 04 Detroit. Pistons team that got an upset in the finals against the Lakers, that Dallas Mavericks team that I just mentioned, you know, a mix of a mix of overlooked guys and veterans and things of that nature. You know, the Andre Iguodala acquisition that I ended up, you know, replicating in 2K, it ended up paying dividends because Andre Iguodala had a fantastic game six. It came, came up big. All yeah. right, well, Brian should be addressed as NBA champion. <laughs> but uh, let's first, talk. Look, this is the first title that I got with a team since, I think, 2K13 with the Knicks. 
well, ne- the Knicks know about a drought much longer than that. So well, man, yeah, ain't, ain't nobody shedding any tears for your <laughs> seven year uh, time of not winning. Um, all right, so let's let, well, let's get into this Back to the Future uh, Volume One. Let's get into this. How we're going to do this? Brian is going to uh, have in this episode. Brian's going to have two players he talks about. I'm going to have a player and a team. Um, that we talk about now that the range of we're talking about here are players from the nineties and two thousands in this episode. Um, so we'll talk about that. Brian, your first player go. Yeah, this is for the basketball nerds. So, uh, this player, I'm just going to reveal it because obviously this will be in the description or whatever. It is not going to be a big reveal, but we're going to start with Andre Miller in terms of point guards. Uh, our point guard today is going to be Andre Miller. Who's had a very, very interesting career was looking through it today uh, very consistent throughout the course of his career. If you look at his peak numbers and you try to find them, it's a very hard thing to sort of narrow down to just a five-year span because you look between 2000 and 2009, which is essentially his second season all the way to his 10th season. Uh, he averaged 15 points per game, seven and a half assists per game, four over four rebounds, and he shot 46% for the field. Obviously not really much of a three-point shooter, which is why he's sort of a fascinating topic of discussion today. And this is in 36 minutes per game, exactly 36, because I went to look up his per 36 during that time, and they were the exact same numbers. So that was kind of crazy. <laughs> That's um, crazy. But huh. yeah, yeah. And Andre Miller in his peak, you know, took less than one three a game, but he also got to the foul line about five times a game, 4.7. So that was pretty interesting as well. Um, so he averaged 16 points a game three different times. He had another year with 15.8, led the league in assists one season with 11 assists per game. And this was a stat that jumped out at me in his first three seasons. So all the way from the 99-2000 season where he played as a rookie to 2012-13 where he was a, truly a very meaningful player for any team he was on during that stretch. Averaged 5.9 assists or more 12 out of those 13 seasons. And that includes those final two seasons where he was a backup point guard, where he wasn't even a starter. So he was on the Denver Nuggets during that time. So, you know, just a whole bunch of interesting numbers, had a lot of win shares, played in 68 playoff games, but didn't play beyond the second round and only went to the second round with the Wizards and the Spurs, where he wasn't as good as he was with, you know, the the Cavs, the the Clippers that one season, uh, the Sixers, obviously. So, you know, this is a guy who, and let's open up the floor on this note, Never had a high usage rate either because this wasn't in an era where point guards had, you know, typically a 25, 30 usage rate. His usage rate was never above 23.8. And Andre Miller obviously didn't shoot three, but he did have the capability to go off offensively at times. Like I said, he averaged 15 points a game in multiple seasons, and he did have a nice offensive game that was more geared toward his time. So, you know, how does that sort of go today, Dex, with the posting up of smaller guards and the head fakes and things of that nature? Yeah, the stuff you mentioned there, the posting up of smaller guards, the head fakes, very savvy, crafty players, something I remembered about him. I always wanted him on the Knicks because Mm. he really could run the show. So if you ask me about how his game translates today, I think that I'm not necessarily sure Andre Miller is a guard that people are dying to go and draft because of the lack of shooting. But I do think there's a place for him in the NBA because he can run a team effectively. The one thing he was really good at that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for and the numbers don't efficiently show is he was a really good finisher. And when he did penetrate, he finished very well around the win. Now, some of that was him being crafty, as you said, with the head fakes and all that you can see with Andre Miller, but really good finisher. 
brilliant, brilliant passer. Like, this is a passing savant. This is probably, to me, one of the better passers, uh, you know, probably 10 passers in terms of point guards you've seen in the last 20 to 25 years. Like, really great passer. Um, you know, maybe not as great as someone like a Chris Paul or John Stockton, obviously, but, like, this was a guy who was consistently up there in assists. That's why I think he's still a role for him, B, because he can run a team. He could come in. You know you'd be steady with him. You felt like his team was steady, you know, and he could get you a solid 15, 16 a game. A lot of that was attacking the rim, decent mid-range player towards the end of his career. Um, he was a player I always liked, man. Like, so I think he wouldn't maybe be the same player in today's game. I'm not sure he necessarily starts in today's game. But I do definitely think he's absolutely positively an NBA player in today's game. Yeah, I don't think that point guards like I know I know we're so like geared towards three point shooting now, and basically your ideal scenario is you're playing four in, I'm mean, four out, one in, where mm-hmm. basically you have a big man or a center just patrolling the lane and just roaming around, staying inside, kind of like what Mitchell Robinson does with the Knicks. So you know that would be hard theoretically, for Andre Miller to play with someone like that the way the game is played today. I actually do think he could be a starter in today's game, though, if you just play sort of a different style. You don't have to go totally old school, but it's not like you can't win with someone who doesn't shoot necessarily well. You know what I mean? From three-point range. I mean, would you rather have somebody who doesn't really shoot the three when he knows that he can't? Or would you rather honestly have a Russell Westbrook who can potentially shoot you out of a game if he's going to continue to jacking up threes, even though he's probably the worst shooter ever by volume, statistically by volume? Yeah. And that's, I think that's a great point. And that's the thing I think maybe, maybe it gives me pause for why he could be a starter is because I think Andre Miller's uh, while not a great shooter, had pretty good feel for the game and shot selection. And I do think that's something that's underrated and does actually matter in basketball today, even if people don't necessarily want to say that all the time. How you feel for the game, knowing when to set your teammates up, knowing when to shoot matters mu- a lot, probably more than the people that might shoot you out the game. You know, And don't get me wrong, I- I'm somebody who supported Russell Westbrook, and I think Westbrook has skills like he, when he wants, he can find he can find people. He's a fantastic penetrator and can set other people up when he wants to, but he can shoot you out the game. And that's something you would knew that Andre Miller necessarily wouldn't do. Now, that could be because he wouldn't have been allowed to shoot that many times in that era, and that's a fair point. But at the same time, you look at it and say he did have a good feel for the game, and he was a true, in the sense of the word, floor general. Yeah, and I I like point guards who actually want to pass like I'm not with the 25 points a game four assists and this is a a point guard who you know has the ball all the time and the usage rate is at 38 and I'm just not with that era of basketball I actually would like an Andre Miller to come in settle things down run the show again at his peak all those years he's hitting 46 47 percent of his shots from the field while getting to the line about five times a game while making 80 percent of his free throws that's something that continued because that's something that he can continue because in today's game, you obviously want to shoot three, which he can get other guys to do. So if you put shooters around him, but what you can also do is have him prioritize getting to the line and in getting to the line, which he would have more space to do. So the way the game is played now, even though he loves that pull up mid range jumper, which he could still shoot, you know, you would be able to do things like that. And I think the only reason we didn't see it sort of work later on is because he got older. But if Andre Miller is born 10 years later and in 2009, the priority for him is probably different. He might get drafted a little bit later than he did 10 years earlier, but I still Hmm. think that there's like, 
a, a, a defined role for him on a good team, not just a role for him on any team, on a good team where he's running the show. Now, let's uh, let's put him on a team. You know what I mean? Let's put him on a couple of teams. And let's sort of play with this on another level. I'm going to throw Andre Miller out there and put him on the Dallas Mavericks. How do you think that looks? Dallas Mavericks is constituted right now? Yes. Well, that's an interesting team because you will get him to take, you'd probably take some of the ball out of Lucas' hands, which I think at some point in Lucas' career is going to be good for him, even though I think Lucas is a fantastically brilliant passer. Um, but I think he could, but the reason why I singled out Dallas first is because right. I think he can use that. I think he can use a floor, a true floor general to be by his side, take the ball out of his hands every now and then so that he doesn't have to have a, a, a usage rate that's obscene. He doesn't have to, you know, sort of pound the ball all the time. I think that he can use somebody like Andre Miller sort of as like a safety net. Yeah. And, and this way you can probably run him off screens more or just try to get him open in a catch and shoot situation so he doesn't have to create off the dribble and I- do the, shoot a step back all the time i wonder how much of that people will see uh or you'll see the mavericks do that with uh luka Doncic as he gets older um i do see that working i think andre miller would be a good fit there it would take a lot of the pressure off of luka like you said to hold the ball it would help porzingis i think it would help other people it would help luka be able to see the floor better too because if you if you haven't coming off of different actions coming off the of screens you got to remember the threat with Luca is he can't just score. He too also was a fantastically brilliant passer. So where he always is a triple threat wherever he gets the ball. So that's it's only going to make him more dangerous as a player. It makes me think if you're the Mavericks constructing a team, maybe getting a point guard that can really run the team. Not that Luca can't, but it actually could take some pressure off him. That's a good one. That's a good. Let one. me get. I'm gonna give you two more before we move on to our wing because I'm really excited about that player. Um, the Lakers. Andre Miller on the Lakers right now. Andre Mil- prime Andre Miller on the Lakers right now, obviously. I know they need shooting. Yes, yeah, that's a the problem. A tougher, and I know it'll be a little bit of a tougher fit, but they, I feel like they still. Uh, Rondo is is cool, but it's a little different now. He's you know a, what I he, mean? he's an upgrade over Rondo. Yeah, I don't know because he could shoot better than Rondo. It's not that much better. It, it well, not from three, but from I know three. what you mean. He's from not. Three. Yeah, he's not. I don't think he would be a perfect fit there. Like it's okay, but it does. <clears throat> He's better than what they have in terms of somebody being another primary ball handler next to LeBron, right? Because that Mm -hmm. team is kind of what you're saying, the antithesis of Luka and the Mavs, where Luka might handle the ball a lot, but he's still young. LeBron, as he's getting older, he's still doing a lot to initiate the offense. You worry about that with the Lakers. So in a way, I would welcome having another ball handler I could trust, not only just to shoot him, Brian, but somebody who can also get to the rim. Right, because that's something the Lakers really lack in that position. So he kind of does fit fit a position in need. You just wish he could stretch the floor a little bit more with his shot uh, at that position. I agree. And now I'm struggling between this last team. Should I pick the good team or should I pick the not so good team of these two? I should pick the good one, right? Yeah. Let me see. Let me hear the good one. Miami. Miami. Um. So Miami, let me. I'm thinking. Um, I think he would. I think it would be a decent fit in Miami because I think he fits in terms of the toughness that they have. Like right. he's kind of like you. I'm thinking about it now, and I'm like, yeah, he's he's in that mold for a Heat player. And 
he fits in that Jimmy Butler, Bam at a bio. Right. I see. I know why you like this, and I see why this all it, goes in. Beyond yeah. beyond just that, though, they do need because you know, having watched a bunch of their games this season, a lot of times they wouldn't really have a point guard starting in their lineup. You know, it'd be Kendrick Nunn, who's more of a scoring guard. He's not really a true point guard. He's more of a two, but he's sort he's sort well, of. What about what about Drogic? He sort of plays as a point guard. Drogic was coming off the bench, yeah. and then you basically had Jimmy Butler with the ball in his hands a lot. So, again, this is somebody who could run the show, especially with rookies there. Tyler Hero, who would actually play a little bit of points sometimes, even though he's not really a point guard. You know, you would have uh, Andre Miller there to sort of help sort things out. They they probably need more shooting, but they still have guys like Kendrick Nunn. You could run him off screens. Duncan Robinson, he was doing that already. He's an excellent three-point shooter. Tyler Hero. So you're taking the ball out of some other guy's hands to create, and you're setting them up with perhaps better looks at the three-point line. Yeah, I'd still probably rather have, not because I necessarily like this player better, but for the fit of that team, I'd probably rather have Drogic with more times at more minutes at the point. Oh, but I think they could play together, to be honest. I mean, Drogic is a point guard who, if you can get him to play a little bit off the ball with the right kind of point guard, yeah. it, 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 it can work. It, it worked with him and Deion Waiters. Yeah, Ooh, well, <laughs> man, a lot of things ain't work with Deion Waiters. So yeah, so <laughs> that is shocking in that, that, that regard. Yeah. yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash A-H-T-T. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I had the big man for this episode. Um... And we, it didn't go with a center, but went with a power forward. Uh, this guy, the guy I picked was Sean Kemp. Yes, played in the NBA for 14 seasons, six-time NBA All-Star, three-time All-NBA Second Team, never made a first team, won a gold medal in '94 during the FIBA World Championship. In my opinion, this guy, when I watched him, he was one of the most gifted leapers, powerful dunkers um, I've ever seen. I've ever seen, and he arguably has probably. Probably my favorite dunk ever. Yeah. My favorite dunk ever is goes back to the 1992 first round of the playoffs. Throws down this vicious dunk on, and this is the only reason you know this man's name. Sorry, sorry to this guy, Austin Lister yeah. of the Warriors. And it wasn't about the fact, Brian, that he just threw the dunk down on him. It was the fact that he pointed at him yeah. after. It was the disrespect <laughs> of it, and I was just like. Yo, I like that. Crossbird Kemp's got it right up into the alley. Oh, it's out! Yeah, baby! In the face, and the Sonics take the lead. 48-47. Woo! The Rain Man! That's why they call this guy the Rain Man. He's called the Rain Man. Now, his peak of his career is really... Um, the best season that comes around for the team he played for for the majority of his career, the Seattle Supersonics, and that was in 95-96. Um, that was the first year that team went to the finals since 1979. Um, but that year, he had a great season where he had just under 20 points um, in, in that season. Let me just make sure I have that correct. He had 19.6 and 11.4 rebounds in that year while also shooting 56% from the field. Now, Kemp was a guy who did not stretch the floor that well as a big man. As he got older, his jump shot from about 15 to 18 feet got better. Um, In that finals that year, they played the Bulls in that finals and lost in six games. 
He had 23.3 points, 55% shooting from the field, and 10 rebounds and two blocks per game, and finished a close second in finals MVP behind the great Michael Jordan. Now, that peak of his career, that really came from, you could say, from 1992-93 to 1997-98, which is when he got traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers his first year there. During that time, he was pretty consistent anywhere between 18 to 20 points per game and averaging double-digit rebounds. So this was a walking double-double guy, very good low-post defender, probably underrated in that aspect. Um, The thing you think about his game is you kind of think when you say Brian, you think that he's one of the most gifted leapers, powerful dunkers, but his game quite never really evolved past that, right? Like he was really truly based on that athleticism. And once he got traded to Cleveland and then later in his career to Portland, uh, there were some weight issues and also some drug issues for Sean Kemp that uh, that affected him um, in that way. So when you look at this guy, as powerful as he was, called him the Rain Man, super exciting, one of the most exciting players in the league at that time. I mean, for my NBA Jam heads who remember from back in the day, you didn't want to play people with Seattle because they had the glove, Gary Payton, and you had Sean Kemp, and you had this guy who was quick and get steals, and you had this dude who could just jam on you. So it was absolutely crazy. But he's an interesting guy because I think the evolution of him, and I want to hear what you think, Brian, is the evolution of Sean Kemp, in my mind, has always been Blake Griffin. Mm. Blake Griffin was a guy that we saw come into the league, really had that athleticism, maybe that we hadn't really seen from a guy in that mold, six, you know, in that 6'8 to 6'10 range, 6'7, Sean Kemp's a little smaller than that, excuse me, I sometimes think he's bigger than that, and was able to jump out of the gym like that. Well, What we saw with Blake was we saw Blake earlier in his career than Sean Kemp evolve his game away, facing up the basket, being able to shoot, and becoming a very, Blake is, underrated passer for a big man. So I, it's interesting because I don't think his game quite evolved the same way. What do you think about how he would fit in the modern NBA? So I, it's funny because I actually, in preparation for this, I saw a little bit of uh, Suns versus Sonics in the 93 uh, Western Conference Finals, a little bit of Game 2 specifically from the Bulls and Sonics uh, NBA Finals. And I watched Rain Man on VHS, which is on YouTube. <laughs> so that was something that I, I, I saw in preparation for this. And obviously, having watched Sean Kemp and go back and look at it, I mean, his highlights were very accessible from the early days of YouTube. So I'm very aware of even his Cleveland Cavaliers days where he shows up to training camp at uh, reportedly 315 pounds and still makes an all-star team yep. or, or having made an all-star team the year before, which tells you about how nice he actually was. I kind of think Zion Williamson is Sean Kemp now to some degree. I think because huh. I, I think Zion Williamson, is, you know, smaller in a different build. He's probably built more like Charles Barkley was or he's not really built like anybody necessarily. But if you're going to, you know, liken him to somebody in terms of his build, you're probably going Sean, uh, Charles Barkley before Sean Kemp. So I kind of think he's a cross between and I've said this between Blake Griffin and Sean Kemp. Where and you know you could probably throw in some Barkley a little bit there too. Man, but, I, I might throw in a little Larry Johnson in there too. That's yeah, guy. yeah, uh, like young, guys, young Larry Johnson. Yeah, like guys like that. So I'm thinking, you know, similar style of play. Sean Kemp again, a walking double double. Zion, you know, a better score around the rim than Sean Kemp was at at 19 years old. I guess you would say, but you know, I think I think it's that. I think now today Sean Kemp is a rim running center, who you know you're gonna want to 
run pick and roll all day. You, you know, there's more pick and rolls in today's NBA than there was back then, especially from the three-point line where he'll have more space. And he'll have more space to finish around the rim, which he was obviously very good at. Um, people would encourage him to take the mid-range jumper more often to create even more space. And I think that that space is going to ultimately, you know, would ultimately help him finish where I could see him, you know, potentially averaging 25 and 11 in today's NBA in his prime. I could also see it going the other way where it, it, you know, you have to try to figure it out, but I think a good coach would figure it out where it's like, yo, this has to be our center at, at he was listed six ten. I'm not sure how actually tall he was, but you know, cause Charles Barkley was listed six, six and was six, four in that era. Patrick, he was listed seven feet. He's come out and said he's six, nine. So I don't know how tall he actually is, but I think he's your small ball center now that you're trying to run pick and rolls. Um, and there are a lot of guys in this era that I think he could out rebound as well. So I think that'll be a very interesting one that, you know, I want to get to the part where we try to put them on some teams and, you know, let's see what we can, we can do with that. But I think, yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned with him because he never really stretched his game as much as I would like during that time. But part of that is what we talked about before, where you just don't know if he was encouraged. Check this out, folks. Sean Kemp never averaged more than one three-point attempt per game. In mm. fact, he never even came to half a three-point attempt per game. Yeah. His highest attempt average per season was 0.4, and that was in 96-97, uh, his last season with the Sonics. So he's he's never done that. Now, I know you want to look at some teams and think about where he could work. So I'm going to take some modern teams for you. I got one. Mm. First one up, because I think this team has kind of been missing uh, somebody who could play the four that might have a little athleticism, and you wonder how it pairs with the two stars they have already. I'm going with the Washington Wizards. How do you see Sean Kemp pairing with John Wall and Bradley Beal? Do you think that could work out? I do because – see, that's one of the good spots where I think you can figure it out. And I like Thomas Bryant, and I think Thomas Bryant is good in that role, but he's not Sean Kemp. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, with, with Davis Bertan shooting three, spreading the floor, that's probably the ideal guy that you would have next to a Sean Kemp who's going to be parading around the paint, running the rim, going from coast to coast, and you want to try to find him on fast breaks, pick and rolls, and things of that nature. Um I'm not sure how much posting up you're going to do in today's NBA, but I would encourage that as well because he could post up. He obviously showed that in his days with the Sonics and later on with the Cavs uh, a little bit as well. So I think that that would be an ideal spot because John Wall, you know, people can say what they want about him in terms of the criticisms and stuff, but this is someone who's going to get you seven, eight, nine, ten assists per game when he's right, when he's healthy. He knows how to run a team. Uh, apparently he wants to get into coaching, which obviously doesn't surprise me because he does seem like he has a pretty high basketball IQ. I would like to see that because that, you know, he's in some ways you could even say that he's a more athletic Gary Payton, uh, John Wall is. So I, I, I think that's something that would work as well. And obviously with Bradley Beal, he's, you know, he's, he's a guard, he's a shooting guard. That's not going to just average like zero assists per game. He'll, he'll actually give you like four or five assists. So I think that's a good, that's a good spot for him. That All right. Be a good spot. All right, so the next team I'm going to is a little bit messy because they have had a history recently of drafting a lot of fours and kind of not knowing what to do with them. Uh, Sean Kemp, it's funny, he played for this team at the end of his career in his last season, the Orlando Magic. Is Sean Kemp a good fit with today's Orlando Magic? Yeah, and I know it's funny because, like, we're, we're, and again, we're not trying to name the perfect teams. We're just trying to see, we're just trying to see, like, how it would go with just, three examples and Orlando magic would be interesting because 
they're they're you know they're cluttered because they have Jonathan Isaac as a forward there. Mo Bamba's a big man. Uh, Vucevic is still there. They signed Alpha Rukaminu for some reason, <laughs> which yep. didn't make any sense. So why not um, sign another power forward? Why not bring it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering how. Like, see, that's an interesting scenario because he doesn't quite have the floor general point guard. Like, think about it. Think about it even this way: if Sean Kemp doesn't get drafted to the Seattle Sonics. You know, how how does his career really look? Because not only did he land with, you know, a team that was sort of on the up and up, but at the same time, he lands with Gary Payton, who happens to be one of the, I don't know, three best point guards of his generation, three, four best point guards of his generation. You know, if you if you were to sort of rank them and right now I'm looking at, oh, that's the wrong draft. I'm looking for uh the there you go the 1989 draft Sean Kemp was mm-hmm. 17th overall pick. 17th if overall he, pick. If he just slides one more down, he, he'd be a Chicago Bull where he almost went in that Scottie Pippen trade that never happened. Mm-hmm. How different is his career then, where he doesn't really have the point guard there? He has Jordan and Pippen, and does he ever really develop, or is he traded by the time you get to 1992? Because this is a win now team who's trying to get parts to win, and while Scottie Pippen had developed he got there a couple years sooner where they had the framework for him set up for him to do that well the thing you got to realize the one thing is that sean kemp's development was quick that i will add if you look at his rookie season uh six and a half points per game also averaged 4.3 rebounds but he made a a very nice jump from year one to year two 15 points per game in the second year with eight and a half rebounds and he accredited, and I remember re- reading this a lot at the time, yeah. he credited a lot of the help for him to Xavier McDaniel, yeah. um, who at that time in 91-92 was then playing for the Knicks and then Boston. Um, he credited him with a lot of being able to make the jump. So in a way, Seattle got a player that developed very quickly and went to their rise as they were early in the playoffs in the early 90s and, you know, and, and doing that. So he had a good jump, but you're right. His development might have been the same playing with a point guard. It could have been different, obviously, if you went anyplace else. So... You know, or if he didn't have Xavier McDaniel in his life to really help him. Um, Whose minutes does he get there? Whose minutes does he get there? If he winds up with the Bulls, let's play this out a little bit. If he winds up with the Bulls, does he get the Bill Cartwright minutes? Is that what happens in the 90s? Well, they probably still put him at the four, and Bill Cartwright hadn't been traded for Oakley again until the next year. So, yeah, probably. He'd probably get some of those minutes. Um, Their fours weren't really good on that team. Horace Grant hadn't come on that team yet. So, yeah, it would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. But yeah, with the Orlando Magic, oh, that's a tough... See, that's a tough one where I don't think it would have went well because there's Markel Fultz, and I like Markel Fultz. He's still developing, but, you know, it's not Gary Payton. It's not John Wall. It's not somebody who's going to be a floor general in that way. DJ Augustine, who I also like, sort of the same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's not He's not quite Andre Miller, who is probably the the best version of DJ Augustine, if that makes any sense. No, no, no. I get I get that. All right, last team I got for you. I thought about take it out west. Phoenix Suns. Put oh. Sean Kemp on today's Phoenix Suns. Get him paired up with a little Devin Booker. Don't really got the point guard yet. Not really sure what they got out of center and DeAndre Ayton. How does Sean Kemp fit in all that? I think with Ricky Rubio, it, it will work. It will work uh, out. You know, it's funny. I forgot they recently signed Ricky. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. with Rubio, it would work out. And Devin Booker, you know, he. I mean. Granted, I think he gets his assists largely because he's a ball-dominant guard who gets double-teamed and has to pass out of them. I don't necessarily think he's like this master sort of shooting guard, combo guard, passer or whatever, but he's not a bad passer. And I think that you can run pick-and-rolls with both of them. Rubio's really – that's an ideal target to play with Sean Kemp, I think. I don't know how he plays with DeAndre Ayton, though, 
that's something yeah. that would be interesting. And that's the sort of problem you would run in to with some of those six, nine, six, ten power forwards of the 90s who were mainly centers back then. A lot of them were post up bigs. What would they do today? How would somebody like that play with DeAndre Ayton? I would like to think that you would find a way to make it work. You know what I mean? Because I do think you can play those kind of guys together. I understand you would want the spacing, but I think if both guys could step out to 17 feet and hit that mid-range jumper, I think that would alone would be enough to open things up. And, you know, Devin Booker is a guy that hits a lot of threes, and he also gets to the line uh, seven, eight times, maybe even more than that per game. So, I think that would be an interesting fit. Better than the Orlando one, but that Washington one would be ideal. Like somebody like that would be the the ideal third man to what Wall and Beal uh, have going on there. Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think Washington they're looking to see if they can uh find it out with their rookie Hachimura who looks like a very athletic four and you're wondering if that that can work out. So it's interesting. The Sports Walk is back. Watch season three of Backpack Broadcasting's original web series that brings you the opinions of real sports fans. The first two seasons and current season are available now for viewing on the Sports Walk YouTube channel and Facebook page. Check out the 2017 NYC WebFest official selection and see what other sports fans have to say on the hottest issues in sports today. It's easy. Just take the Sports Walk. For the wing, we're going to go with Peja Stojakovic. Oh, one of my favorites. We're going to go with Peja Stojakovic. Yes. All right. I, look, this was a, and there's a couple other guys that I wanted to go with, but we're going to start with Peja because there's a lot to get to with, as it relates to some of these other guys. So Peja made three all-star teams, uh, one of the best shooters of the 2000s, you know, Absolutely. really one of the best shooters ever, I would say. Um I read about him for the first time in my life in a children's book about NBA basketball. You know what I'm saying? It was like, it, it was, a, it, they were just chronicling like who were the best duos in the NBA type of thing or in sports uh. rather in sports. So Shaq and Kobe, Peja, and I think it was Peja and Chris Webber at the time. Uh, and then they had like Ray Ordonez and Agardo Alfonso, which was interesting in itself. This was like, 2000 and 2001 or whatever the case may be so anyway um it was early page but he obviously became better after that uh 610 small forward and we're gonna get to that in a little bit who uh you know would obviously spread the floor but could also take people off the dribble and get to the free throw line uh four times a game one season his very his best season in 0304 which is when he really went crazy 24 points a game six rebounds a game 48 percent from the field 43.3% from three, 92.7% from the free throw line, fourth in MVP voting, and that was the year that he made an all-NBA team. Uh, he was 40% from three for his entire career, although he never averaged more than 6.8 attempts per game. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, and his peak years from 2000 to 2006, this is somebody who averaged 20.6 points a game, five and a half boards, hit about 47% from the field. Almost 41% from three during that whole entire stretch and 89.6% from the free throw line. So, and his peak per 36 minutes, I should mention, about 20 points a game, over five rebounds, roughly the same. Also, an important player, though not the star that he was in Sacramento, but an important player with Chris Paul and Tyson Chandler on that Charlotte uh, or New Orleans Hornets team. New Orleans Hornets team in 2007, 2008, where Chris Paul, uh, 
arguably got robbed of an MVP that year. And, you know, that was a really fun and exciting Hornets team that he was a part of that he was still, you know, very good on. And then later later on, he wins a ring with the Dallas Mavericks as an important role player and a stretch uh, big man on that team. So, Peja Stojakovic, what do you think that sort of looks like? Because I have a couple of things that I think it looks like in today's NBA, but I, I, I think it goes really, really well. Yeah, I think out of all the players we talked about today, undoubtedly the best fit in the modern NBA and a guy that absolutely would be shooting more than 6.8 attempts per game. I think people will be telling him to shoot nine. Brian and I spoke about this before when we talked about certain players. And Brian made a comparison that I thought was pretty good. When you think about the way Peja kind of played his game and moved on the court and comparing him to Clay Thompson. And I do think that was a pretty good comparison. Now, he was not as good defensively as Clay Thompson is today. Clay Thompson almost in a way is an evolution of Peja Stakovich without sort of the, the size um, and, and I would say Clay is a bit of a quicker release. Page had a beautiful release. Yes. Uh, if you don't know, go back and look at the tape. Yes. As we'll show you here, Page had an absolutely beautiful release. And because of his six ten size that Brian mentioned, shot almost you never saw a shot blocked. He couldn't block his shot. He, sh- I, I was surprised during that peak stretch, he shot forty one percent. Did not realize that. But when I really think about it, I shouldn't be surprised because I could tell you this. I remember when watching the Kings, especially the Kings of the early two thousands, those teams. Anytime Page shot. He was one of those players, kind of like Steph, kind of like Clay. You're like, yo, this is going in. Ray Allen in his prime. You're like, yo, this is going in from deep. And that's how good of a shooter this guy was, how versatile he was. The other thing I think, Brian, you talked about the ability that he had to put on the floor. I think that's something people forget about Page's game. Now, he didn't do too much with it, but he could make a dribble, get to his left or right, head fake you, get you in the air, and shoot. And he would drain that. He was really good at that. In this era of basketball, with the kind of coaching he would receive, I think you'd see him put on the floor more. I think you see him create more between yep. the legs. I think you see him take a step right-left, try to finish more at the basket. That's something you didn't see a lot of Peja. If he got it, it was coming off the curl, and he would attack the basket. But I think his game is tailor-made for today. I mean, it is perfect. He would shoot more. Any Look, if Peja Stojakovic was coming out, this year, the kind of prototype player he was, you'd yeah. be talking about potentially number one pick in the draft yeah. because you'd be looking at what he could do. You would have some questions about the defensive limitations, but I absolutely think you would see the shooting. You would see the size. I mean, in a way, he was a little smaller, but you kind of got to think about it. He was a little smaller, but he was almost like a pre-Porzingis in a way. Yeah, Not necessarily as good defensively and rebounding in the height, but the, the height and the ability to shoot, there wasn't a 6'10 European dude that shot it as well as he did from that deep um, with that consistency. So, yeah, man, Peja, whoo, Peja would, Peja would absolutely kill in today's game, undoubtedly. So I'm pulling up his, uh, his page one more time, and he was drafted in 96. Yep. This is one spot after Kobe Bryant, 14th overall, uh-huh. that for arguably the greatest draft of all time. If you drop him into the 2016 draft, Ben Simmons was the number one overall pick. I don't know what the scouting reports were for young Peja Stojakovic, but if if I tell you we have a guy 6'10", could play uh, forward, combo forward, and in this era today, he would undoubtedly be a stretch four, 
I know he was a small forward back in the day, Chris Webber, Vladi Divac, but today he's a six, he's six ten. He's automatically gonna play the four, even Absolutely. some small ball five in some lineups as well. Because oh, yeah. you know, some teams are gonna want to play five out. If you drop him in a 2016 draft, I think he's the first overall pick. If you just find out about his skill sets, I think people are gonna take him over Ben Simmons, especially when you consider one guy could not only shoot but is an elite shooter, and the other guy doesn't really shoot, despite running a team very well and playing defense. So then you get into what do his peak years look like? And I'm thinking if he has a stretch like that in the 90s that I just read off where it's 20 points a game, six rebounds, the the 41% three-point shooting for a number of years, 47% from the field, I think you're looking at a for a stretch at least a top 15, 20 player in the NBA with some top 10 years, with some years where he's in the top 10. He probably gets more all-NBAs, more all-star games, especially if he's on a good team. And again, if you look at the three-point attempts, because I mentioned this before, him never averaging more than 6.8 three-points attempts per game, us knowing how good he was. Because I saw him as a kid, and I was fascinated watching those playoff games. You know, like, this is somebody who was knocking down a lot of three-point shots. And, you know, when you're a kid, you think it's cool when guys continue to knock down three-point shots with hands in their face over and over, especially against the Lakers at that time. So I go to Klay Thompson, and... His second year, his second year in the NBA, he's at 6.4 three-point attempts. So right after that, from 2013-14, his third season, all the way through his ACL tear last year, so you're talking six straight seasons, seven and up. Seven and up, three-point attempts per game, uh, a couple years even more than that. He's only had, though, one season of three free-throw attempts at least. By comparison mm. so Peja puts the ball on the floor more although I wonder if that's a product of Clay Thompson being in Golden State because if he's in Orlando he probably tries to get to the line more mm-hmm. and things of that nature but I think if Page is on a pretty good team now this is somebody who is elite at his position you're talking about being a top three to five stretch four in the game and you're talking about somebody who is going to put up some of those cartoonish clay numbers, like when clay gets really hot and he could hit, you know, 11 threes without dribbling or whatever the case may be. Peja could do that and more in terms of shooting the ball. Now he's, I don't know where he would, what he would do defensively necessarily against some of these fours. That's probably where I would have some questions because the fours now there aren't like the post-up bigs before the fours now are like LeBron James. You know what I mean? You're going to run into, you know, some other guys who are not like, you know, true i guess fours of the past but julius Randle is somebody who i think is a four in any era and that would be an interesting matchup that might be a matchup problem for peja but offensively i think he's elite probably 25 points a game for even a few seasons i agree i'm I'm very intrigued to see the teams you mentioned because you know what i'm thinking about in my mind Mm. what team could he not play on today show me the team that he couldn't play on the tape i find it very hard to believe that there's a team that couldn't use pages and that's a good point because again everyone's after this kind of player now which is why i think that again if you drop him in 2016 i think he's the number one overall pick as a prospect but you know i mean look let's start at the very top if i drop him into the milwaukee bucks right (laughs) where he has to where Giannis needs shooting around him right yeah it's like you're playing, so you're going to have a lineup. This is this is probably one of the only places where it's like, okay, he's the three, even though basketball is more positionless now. But it's like he's the three because – and in some lineups he's the four because, you know, Giannis will be the five and whatever the case may be. But what you'll 
ideally be doing is you have your point guard. You might slide Middleton to the two for a little bit. Peja would be your three. And then Giannis and then maybe Brooke Lopez, Robin Lopez, whoever the center is. It kind of doesn't matter at that point. So you're talking about Bledsoe or George Hill, you know, whatever. Um, Middleton at any point in the game, Stojakovic, Giannis, and whoever the center is. That yeah. that right there, it's like it, – here, here's 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 why this works in a nutshell. You put Stojakovic on that team. He's already the second best player on the team, undoubtedly. Right. Like, it's not even close, okay? He's better than Middleton. He's better than Bledsoe, who you want to shoot the three in the playoffs yeah. and hasn't shown up. He's already better than those dudes. He gives you a reliable second option that you know can hit the shot. And you trust to take the shot in big games. You might be a little concerned about his defense, as you said, undoubtedly. But he's already the second best player. Let me tell you something. Giannis Antetokounmpo will be die. He wants Pedro Stojakovic in his prime to come on that team. That's the, the Bucks, the Bucks probably would be they, the Bucks probably would be absolute NBA favorites to win a title. Um, that would be as a good one-two combination as you have in the league with an athletic four who can attack and just furiously take anybody inside and his game is getting better from the outside and you got a sniper from the outside who can also put the ball on the, ball on the floor, man, listen, I'm telling you, if, Gian, if uh, Giannis sees this, he said, he's going to look at some old page of tapes and start salivating. And then he's going to go back to his practice whenever the NBA returns and be like, oh, this is what I got to work with? I got to play with y'all? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not on his team, at least. Well, most of those guys, at least. Um, yeah. Let's go with the Philadelphia 76ers next because if he would have been the number one overall pick in that draft, so let's let's play this out all the way. Let's take off Ben Simmons. Let's just say, you know, Paige is 20 years younger. You drop him in that draft. He's the number one overall pick. Ben Simmons goes to Boston or whatever the case may be. Or who had, I don't even know who had the set. Oh, the Lakers or whatever the Lakers. case may be. That would be interesting. Um, but let's say Paige is the number one overall pick. You take out Ben Simmons. You probably need a point guard. But this is somebody who... You know, he plays the Tobias Harris role better than Tobias Harris, I would think. Yep, you hit the nail on the head there. Plays the Tobias Harris better in the role than Tobias Harris. And here's the thing. While I think Ben Simmons is fantastic on defense and can run a team and is really good pass on stuff, you know what I like? People who actually are going to shoot. And this is what <laughs> Peja Stojakovic is going to do for you. So, yes, I would like I would like to see him paired with the Joel Embiid and what kind of pick-and-roll combinations and what they could have done with that. And you know who else would like it? It's kind of like the Giannis thing. Joel Embiid would also like this yes. because his number two guy or his guy playing along with him, whatever you want to call it, he would know that the guy is actually going to shoot. That matters to me a ton. And Peja would have been a high-efficiency guy, not somebody you had to have a high usage, but I think he would have been very efficient in what he did. And again, shooting matters, right? You can't make the shots if you don't shoot. That's kind of my thing with Ben Simmons. There are things I like about him, but he doesn't. So if they had got him over Ben Simmons, because I like what you did with that, Brian, that you actually took it back to a year and replaced it with this player, yeah, I think it would bode well because then you know what you could do with a team like that? Then you can have your Andre Miller guy come in and run that kind of team because now you need a guy to just set everything up. And even if he doesn't kind of shoot as much or he actually will take a shot, it's better for guys like Peja and Joel Embiid. So now... Let me move it back a little bit. Let's say, let's say Peja, young Peja is a prospect or the equivalent of it, it's a prospect. Let's say we're going into the 2020 NBA draft, right? Let's say we're going into the 2020 NBA draft. Uh, the lottery plays out. 
and I don't know, maybe the team from New York wins it, right? Maybe <laughs> maybe the Knicks actually win the lottery for the first time since 1985 when they got Patrick Ewing. And the Knicks have a shot at the number one overall pick. And there's like a young Paige Stojakovic equivalent. Then you have LaMelo Ball. Uh, you have Anthony Edwards. All the same guys you would have now. First, Dex, since you have all the Knicks gear on, I have to ask, what would you do, one? And two, um, you know, what would you do? And then how would how would you think that player would fit on that team right now? Because I think you're going Paja. You think? <laughs> You think I'm going, Peja? First of all, I like players who create matchup problems. Mm -hmm. And I like players who know how to make shots. I think if you're elite at one thing, like if you're elite at shooting, I really can like that. If you're elite at defense, I can like that too, except if you're like Ben Simmons and you don't shoot. Yeah. I like that. I like matchup problems. It's kind of the reason why people know for me, I liked when the Knicks drafted Porzingis. So you're telling me if there's a young Peja out here in 2020, that the Knicks could get with the top pick, would I take him? Hell yeah, I'll take him. Absolutely, you got to <laughs> take him. Number one. Number one. And yes. this, by the way, this says a lot about where the NBA was about 24 years ago, being that, you know, with the skill set. I mean, granted, people didn't know, I guess, that he'd become this. But still, I think that what we're ultimately saying is if you drop him in with that skill set, having played where he played and coming over, because ba- that was back when we had problems with European players. You know, in America, we're like, right. oh, you know, they're soft. This was pre-Dirk Nowinski, so people have right. to take that into account. Because right. if you drop him into a draft now, yeah, this is going to be one of the top picks in the draft. And the Knicks are an interesting situation, too, because... However, pe- people, let me just be clear. People will still boo the pick because there's still a bias and oh, okay, kind of ridiculousness yeah. against European players and not want to take it. It's the reason Luka Doncic didn't get pick number one when he should have been. Oh. So sti- that still exists. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what I think, too, is when we talk about all this stuff, you and I are always about this. We're talking about coaching and development of players today as opposed to what they were 24 years ago. And I'm telling you, somebody that had a young pager would have him creating more. He'd be even more dangerous. I'm not saying he'd be Luka. But I'm saying out of out of the crop, because you mentioned it, that it is in this 2020 draft, potentially, he's a guy who would say, oh, that guy can make me shots. Yeah. As opposed to LaMelo Ball and other dudes, i got questions about them. It's not saying I don't like them and they can't be good players, but I would look at this guy and be like, he can make me shots. And he's a matchup nightmare. So there's another level to this, and the reason why I wanted to name the Knicks in particular, because it's obviously the situation they have there is clunky right now. Right. Yeah. I want yeah. to name them for two reasons, because one, it's clunky and two, because they have a top pick. So it's like, let's let's put a, a, a not so great team in there. <laughs> so you have whoever your point guard is. Let's just say Alfred Payton for the sake of this. Right. Let's say you have Alfred Payton, you have R.J. Barrett, uh, Page at the three, which Page at the three in 2020 is a little different than Page at the three in 2005. I would think Randall Mitchell Robinson, assuming like you just keep everything good. Is there an issue, do you think, with playing Peja at the three, where really what he's going to be guarding now are twos because the way the game is played has gotten smaller. So some of the guys who are 6'5", 6'6", now that, you know, would be twos are threes and some, you know, and, and things of that nature. I think there's an issue with it unless for a time being, if you have that lineup with Alfred Payton, what you would ideally, I think, want to do down the road is go get yourself a bigger point guard, a la a Ben Simmons, a la somebody who's six seven ish, like a Luka Doncic has a little bit more size. LaMelo Ball maybe, in that same LaMelo draft. Ball, LaMelo <laughs> Ball in that same draft. Somebody you can use so you can hide Peja a little bit on defense or put him on weaker point guards or twos that aren't that 
um, aggressive. So somewhere you can hide him. Because that's how you got to construct your teams now, too. If you get the guy that shoot, but because if he's enough of a matchup problem as I think he would be on yeah. the other side, on the offensive side of the ball, yo, you're going to want to give him minutes. So if you think he's that suspect defensively, you got to try to find a way to hide him or maximize your strengths. I Agreed. think what, what the other thing you might want to do on that team is you're going to probably need maybe a better four defensively as well, too, because if it was a Knicks, you got Mitchell Robinson, who's really good defensively at the five, even though he fouls too much. But if you get a better defensive player at the four position than Julius Randle, um, that might help on situations where you got to switch. It's just you're going to just need more two-way players around that dude. That's yeah. all. Yeah. And, and and the the important thing to note is that even in a lineup that's clunky like the Philadelphia one where, you know, he would obviously be the Tobias Harris of that and there would be no Ben Simmons and with the Knicks one or frankly any team, he would be the best offensive player on a, a lot of teams, like not a little bit. Like there are – I could probably give you half the teams in the league where he'd be a better off- – he'd be I the, agree. If he goes back to the Kings right now, if you just fast forward or – no, rewind 20 years, take Peja Stojakovic from 03-04 and put him on the Kings right now, he's the best player on that team easily. And that's not I a agree. nod to De'Aaron Fox or anybody. I agree. But this is, this is the level of player we're talking about. He's like the antithesis of this is a guy who played – in the 2000s, who was way ahead of his time. And we're going to get to some more as we continue the series. Yep. But Peja Stojakovic is very, very high on that list. New podcast alert. Life coaches Marguerite Pierce and Lindsay Jackson are bringing a rich blend of laughter, love, and wisdom to their podcast, Necessity. The pod seeks to reestablish the basic tenets of self-love, self-confidence, goal accomplishment, and the ability to love life on your own terms. Necessity is available on all major podcast platforms, so grab a cup and listen up as two coaches are on a mission to shift perspective one sip at a time. For the last thing we're going to do for this volume of Back to the Future is we're always going to have a team. And the team we decided, uh, I decided to pick for this one uh, we're going back to Seattle. We went to Seattle earlier with uh, Sean Kemp. He's going to be part of this, too. We're going to look at the 1995 to 96 Sonics. This was, and I remember, because um, I was in middle school at the time. It's my first year of middle school, I believe. Mm. Um, this was a very interesting year in basketball. This is the year that the Bulls won 72 games. and went 72 and 10. Um, yep. But the Sonics were... Really damn good that year. And they kind of were coming into their own the last few years. They had lost to the Suns and then lost to Houston a couple of times. They had their heart broken. They kind of really were ascending. And they had two all-stars, uh, Sean Kemp, Gary Payton. Uh, Sean Kemp, the rain man, Gary Payton, the glove, the duo. Where they were known as the Sonic Boom. That's mm. what they called that duo back then. And this year was interesting because the Sonics had played pretty well. And then after the All-Star break, they really took off. The team won 30 of their final 36 games. They finished with a 64-18 record, which was the second-best record in the league, number one seed in the West. Um, looking back at this team as I was doing this, Brian, as we did all for this, 64-18, uh, went to their first NBA Finals. They played those 72-10 Bulls. They lost. In six games. After losing the first three, came back and won the next two and lost in game six. Um, other couple notes about this team. This team was coached by George Carl. Mm. Assistant coaches on this team are two current head coaches now, Dwayne Casey and Terry Stotts, mm. on this team. This is a team 
that was one of the better defensive teams in the 90s, early to mid-90s. A lot of times people thought about the Knicks, you thought about the Bulls, uh, the Pacers, the Heat, those teams. The Sonics were really good and underrated. Kemp was good in the post. Gary Payton, obviously great. One defensive player of the year that year. I believe I'm not, I'm, don't quote me if I'm incorrect on this, he's the last guard to ever win that award. Um, I don't think yes. any guard any guard has won that since. I'm correct on that. Yeah. This the one thing about this team in the West at that time, and I'll Brian and I will get into this points per game and pace of play. Okay. <laughs> this is very interesting when you're looking at teams from the 90s. Now this team played very fast. I remember this from the eye test of watching this as an 11, 12 year old kid. They played very up tempo. Gary Payton pushed the ball, looked for Kemp in the, on the fast break a lot. They were third in the league in pace, uh, 93.8 points per possession. Points per game, they averaged 104 and a half points per game. Guys, I know for modern NBA, you're like, that's it? 104 <laughs> points per game? Yeah. They had 104 and a half points per game, and that was number two in the league, folks. Number two in the league for that. Now, we talked about the defense, B. 102.1. So the score on 104 and a half, 102.1, that was second in the NBA in 95-96. Now, I want to tell people, because that's an interesting time. Because if you really think about it, the pace you could tell was actually going up. If you probably look at some of the numbers from 91, 92, 93, 94, where some of the best defensive teams like the Knicks and the Spurs were holding people to 89, 90 points a game on average. This was happening. So you can see the pace starting to go up. Their offensive rating, they were uh, eighth out of 29 teams in the league, 110 points um, per possession for offense. So they were really good. Now, this is the interesting team thing about this team yeah. and why I picked them. And we think about how teams fit. All this entire episode, Brian and I have been talking about how guys fit and shooting. Shooting is what is at a premium in the league right now. We know this. This team, for a team in the mid-90s, yo, they had shooters, man. They had shooters. Sean Kemp and Gary Payton always had a shooter by their side. They were absolutely ready. Hersey Hawkins, who the team had acquired that offseason before from the Charlotte Hornets. For people who don't know, kids out there, you don't know. Hersey Hawkins was a really good shooter and a very good scorer early in his career for the Sixers, then played for the Hornets, then got acquired sort of towards the end of his career by the Sonics and had a very important role. Hawkins that year shot over 38% from downtown. They also on this team, head coach in the league, Nate McMillan, 38%, very good three-point shooter. Sam Perkins, one of the big men that really started spacing the game out and was going out to the three-point line, a big man that could shoot the threes, he actually had, I think he was rocking the dreads at this time and did <laughs> not play like your trip, a typical dread player. If you haven't heard my thoughts on that, that's a whole nother story. He was shooting 35% from downtown. And then the best shooter on the team was a guy who was a very uh, underrated small forward in this era, could give you about 16, 17 a game, Detlef Schrempf, small forward three, 40%. Now, Here's the thing. It's about attempts per game. This is not a team that shot a lot of threes per game in terms of what we know it now. And the biggest glaring thing on this team to me was their best shooter, Detlef Shrimp, 40% from downtown. He only averaged 2.8 three-point attempts per game. Gary Payton, <laughs> the Hall of Famer, averaged more three-point attempts per game than him, 3.7. 
despite shooting only 32%. So please think about that, people. Yeah. Gary Payton, who undoubtedly was the best player on the team, was not the best three-point shooter on the team. And the coaching staff still was like, it's okay for Gary Payton to shoot almost four threes a game. Meanwhile, the best three-point shooter on the team only shot just under three attempts per game. By um, the way, by the way, while yes. playing 35 minutes a game, deadless shrimp. 35 yes. minutes a game out there shooting less than three threes. Less than three threes a game, right? <laughs> great, great, great point to that. You can't you, even wrap your head around it. You today. can't. It's it's like mind boggling. It's like you had one of the best shooters in the league, and you didn't let him shoot more or have run plays from to shoot more. Different world. Uh, Sam Perkins, which I would have to say, and I remember people saying this at the time, he shot four point four threes a game. Now, mm-hmm. at the time, nobody really wanted big men shooting threes like that. So you got to think Sam Perkins, who for the most part was a bench player and then came in and started in that finals at center, people probably were like, what's going on here? Nate McMillan shot only 2.2 threes a game, averaging 38%. And a Hersey Hawkins, who's probably their most prolific in terms of volume shooter, 4.6 attempts per game. But he was a really good shooter at this time. And they were really great at the corner three. Now, Brian, the question is, considering this team's Best players, Kemp and Payton, Sonic Boom duo, yeah. weren't great outside shooters, but they had the way you'd kind of want to develop the team around them, right? They had the shooters and the spacing, but they didn't shoot a lot of threes. Um, it's an interesting time. Other thing I'd like to note about the Seattle Sonics team, yes. this was the year that they changed their logo to the cartoony-looking Sonics with the uh My needle. favorite. <laughs> I do not. Oh, we disagree on that. I absolutely did not care for this. I did not care for this jersey oh, change. Not my favorite. My second favorite. My favorite one was actually the last one they had. Where they went a little bit back to more of their yeah, traditional yeah, yeah, logo. Yeah, yeah. And I did like that. I didn't like this cartoony thing in the number. Yeah, but, the Christmas but colors. To be fair to the Sonics, a lot of teams in the 90s had some cartoony looking jerseys. Pistons. We're, we're going to have to go back on that one day and look at like a uniform breakdown of teams. There, there were some bad jerseys in the 90s. Um, so I didn't like that. What did you think about this team yeah. and how they could fit in today? Because I think it's a fascinating team. They were really good defensively, and they had the shooting, but it didn't seem like they used the shooting as much as they should. So in 1995-1996, um, the Nets shot nine threes a game. Just so we're clear on how the game was being played in some parts of the country. The 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 New Jer- the then New Jersey Nets shot nine threes a game. They were dead last in the NBA. The Indiana Pacers, so then people can get – a grip on like what was really going on at the time. The Indiana Pacers shot 11.9 threes a game, second lowest or third lowest in the NBA. Reggie Miller took half of those per game. Basically they had Reggie Miller and they still didn't take more than 12 threes a game, which is very interesting. And then when you're talking about pace, you know, the Sonics were uh, third in pace that year at 93.8. The Cavs were a team that was dead last 82.3. A Cavs team that made the playoffs, by the way, and that I'm going to stop you there because you, that's one of those things you have to be there to see it. That is what you call back then a Mike Fratello special. Yes, Mike, that's what it was. Mike Fratello was the he was his whole offense was about pounding the ball and taking the shot at the last possible second on the shot oh. clock. For, Brian, Columbia, Columbia Prep used to do this to us when we played them in high school. It was Brian, so annoying. You can't imagine like playing it is annoying. Watching games against the, the Cavs were like the unwatchable team to watch in the NBA of that okay. era. Like even people of that era hated watching the Cavs and because the, that's all they did. 
that's weird because like your your best player at the time where your leading scorer at least was Terrell Brandon, somebody who should be running up and down the floor and paying a and playing a fast paced game, not somebody who should be playing for Tello Ball. But anyway, back to the Sonics. Um, <laughs> Life for Tello special, man. <laughs> yeah, but the Sonics and the Celtics were actually first in pace that year, which is interesting. So the Mavericks led the league in three point shooting in terms of attempts. They shot twenty four point nine three point attempts per game, the lowest in the NBA this season. five um the houston rockets lead the league right now at 44 threes a game so look at the disparity there you have the nets were the lowest at nine threes a game and you have the team with the lowest now is in the 20s so that's just a whole another thing so for those reasons i think the sonic team is interesting because when you look at those guys detlef shrimp who would probably be a power forward now we were just talking about peter stoyakovich mm-hmm. uh and in today's game he would be a four whereas back then he was a three detlef shrimp Kind of the precursor to that, although Peja was obviously a much better version. Detlef Shrimp would be a four today. He'd be a stretch four. Um, I wonder if you would play this team differently because – and I think you would because I think Sean Kemp is your center now, right? I think Sean Kemp is your center. You have I- Detlef Shrimp as your four. And, I mean, even though Irvin Johnson was a starting center, he wasn't somebody that was playing big minutes at the time, you know? They, they really had no – they really had no center. It was Irvin Johnson and – uh. Uh, I'm forgetting the dude's name. White white dude would be if his last name that was uh their backup Frank center. Burkowski. Burkowski. Frank Burkowski. I yeah. would not want brick in my name if I'm a basketball player. But. Yeah, he was kind of like you know he's a guy that came in. He could give you five fouls a game. You know that's what you count yeah. on him for. He's gonna get those five fouls a game. But Quite they kept. There were a lot of those centers in the NBA. But back you, then. but but you know but you know what's crazy about you think about stuff and forward thinking. I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because I think that's a great point. Their best lineup. Probably would have been Kemp at the five, yes. Shrimp at the four. You could have put Hersey Hawkins maybe to play the three. And honestly, their best two would have been Nate McMillan, who used to come off the bench. Mm. He played a good role and put him at the two. Play that probably the best. Play good defense. You that backcourt could lock anybody up, and you had some shooting with him. You could have been okay. Yeah, and Sam Perkins is what he was listed 6'9, 235. That's kind of a prototypical stretch four nowadays, who would even play some small ball five, depending on how small you would go. So I think, you know, Sam Perkins and Detlef Shrimp, you probably alternate them the entire game, or maybe you, and, and there are probably times where you actually play them side by side, because if Sean Kemp is going to take a minute. You know, you have to put him on the bench for 14 minutes a game, let's say, because if he's averaging 34 minutes or so, because guys don't play as many minutes as before, you don't see guys playing 40 minutes. So what you're probably doing is you have Sean Kemp playing center, and when he's not on the floor, if you're not putting in Irvin Johnson to be the backup in this case scenario, you're probably going to have Detlef Shrimp and um, who did I just mentioned? Detlef Shrimp and... Um, Sam Perkins, there you go. Sam, Sam Perkins, Perkins playing yep. together. You're going to have Detlef Shrimp and Sam Perkins playing together. Hersey Hawkins is going to be at the three. Nate McMillan will be your two. Gary Payton will be your one. Eric Snow uh, will be your backup. He was the backup on that team. And then you're ready to roll. You're going to have – and look at what we're mentioning here. We have Detlef Shrimp. You have shooting everywhere because that's your five. You know what I mean? Instead of having Irvick Johnson sort of clog the lane and when, when Sean Kemp is – 
out when Sean Kemp is off, you're probably playing, you know, five out at that point. Yeah, I think what happens you look at that error is centers centers were dominant in the game, and so people were so much afraid of the big man that I think that sometimes they didn't adjust to the teams that didn't have the big man. And that's what it could have I wonder if they had went to that in that 95-96 finals, how much more fascinating that could have been because the Bulls were a team that won all these championships and never had a dominant big man. Yeah. You're talking about Luke Longley and Bill Wennington. I mean, Sean Kemp could have held it. They would have. They were more scared of Sean Kemp than anything. Yeah. So, I I think that it would have been fascinating to see. But I feel like a lot of people were were stuck in traditions, as we know, can get people in a lot of problems and things, and did it really deviate? And I think the reason we've seen basketball accelerate a lot more in the last ten plus years or so is people have been willing to try a lot more new things and not stick to norms and not say that only certain people can shoot threes. But this is a team, I think, in my opinion. With modern coaching today, if you took one or two assistants now, Terry Stotts or Dwayne Casey, mm, and you yeah. told them to coach this team even today, I think they would use a lot of the pieces differently. I think you would see a lot of these guys shoot more team. In a weird way, they're actually well-structured to win today because yeah. they have the defensive uh, attributes. There's some things you might like more out of Sean Kemp as your number two guy, but they have the basis of a good defense. They could switch a lot on stuff if you played small. They had shooters. So they could have played well today. They kind of fit in what it is today. I think there's a couple things you tweak, but I think this is a team that could actually work well in the modern NBA. Yeah, I agree because if I, you know, if I put the 95-96 Sonics in a time machine and, you know, fast forward them 25 years and they're in today's NBA, they're not only shooting 19 threes a game that they were that season, which, by the way, they were fourth in the NBA in three-point attempts at that point. You're probably... And I still think it wasn't enough. That's the point I'm saying. They were yeah. fourth in the NBA in three-point attempts, and I still don't think they shot enough. Right. And, and and look, and we could even get into that with some other teams of the 2000s who probably should have shot more. Like, this goes, you know, even further back than that. Larry Bird, you know, we think of him as a three-point shooter because he won the three-point contest. He wasn't somebody that shot a ton of threes in games. And if he did, we'd probably think of him think of him even differently than we do now so if you look at the sonics and instead of 19 attempts even 29 attempts would be too little because that's still putting you toward the bottom of the nba let's put them in the middle of the pack and let's say they're shooting 35 threes a game right now if they're shooting 35 threes a game right now with the rotations that we sort of laid out where sean camp is now your center you have detless shrimp you have uh, sam perkins you have hersey hawkins you have gary payton that's your starting five and then when Sean Kemp goes, Detlef Shrimp slides to the five. You probably have some other things going on with some other shooters, but you're playing the shooters to their strengths. You know, you're talking about a team that, all right, they're in the Western Conference now. They'd be well-equipped against, I think, even some of the elite teams because of how well they could defend, which you alluded to also. I, I might argue that if you had these teams, if you took that same roster and they were put in today's game, I don't even think Sean Kemp's your second best player. I think Detlef Schrempf would actually be your second best player. Really? Yeah, because Ooh, okay. he would shoot more. He's so efficient that, and he's a matchup problem yeah. at the three or four. I, I think he would actually be your second best player. So let's play this out under today's sort of rules, right? Um, Western Conference semifinals, two versus three. Let's say the Clippers are the second seed and the Sonics are the third seed. Like, how does this go? Because with the Clippers, you're going to see some lineups where. It's not really going to be the power forwards of old necessarily. You're going to see like Kawhi and Paul George as your three and four with Montrezl Harrell as your five, some Zubak in there. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. If they matched up, the Clippers are just 
the Clippers are too good defensively and would switch. They have too much size in the way they could switch over them. Like Paul George and Kawhi are still too much of a nightmare for like Hersey Hawkins or Nate McMillan, as good as those players were. So I think that size would be a, give them a bit of an edge. And then what they could bring with like uh, Marcus Morris and even what Montres ha- right. Harrell. Although I'd love to see Montres Harrell banging down there with Sean Kemp. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. Like, cause that would be good. Two dudes just angry, like trying to jam on each other. Yeah, yo, that's, that's my, cool. That's my kind of game. Yo. Now I think that would be I think that would be a good series. Um, I even think a good series to look at with that team would have been what the Clippers were during the Lob City era versus mm. this Sonics team. Now they obviously have a rim runner in DeAndre Jordan that I think could give that Sonics team some problems, but you might argue the Sonics had some better shooting than them, and if they were allowed to shoot more, it would have been interesting. I really wonder, and I hope one day I'm gonna get to ask this some coaches, some of these coaches like George Carl. I wonder if they sit up at night and think. Damn, y'all! I kind of wish I made my team shoot more threes. Yeah, like I wish, or I wish I'd put Sean Kemp at the five in the '96 Finals. Like, I wonder if they think about things that keeps them up, or you know, they've kind of moved on. Either way, it's always fascinating and interesting. We didn't mention Vincent Askew, who was somebody who played a lot of shooting guard minutes on this team back yes. then. Who didn't really? I mean, he attempted one three a game, and he shot you know thirty four percent from three. So. Uh, you know, I, I don't even think he was one of these shooting guards that would score like, a lot because no. he would average eight points a game. So I think he's somebody who kind of gets phased out of your rotation Cause he, a little cause bit. Because he, he was more of a spot-up shooter. That's yeah. all he really was. And so Vincent Askew wasn't really scaring anybody. Like he couldn't really put it on the floor, even like a pager, like we said before. Yeah. He was efficient enough, and he was a solid defender, but he wasn't he wasn't really more than a spot-up shooter. My concern with dropping them in today's game would probably that they're they don't have much depth. That's something that would probably That's hurt fair. them. Um, you can't be playing. You can't be playing Frank Bukowski. That ain't gonna work, <laughs> right? It's cause, yeah, because it gets really like. So if you play it out, Gary Payton's your one, Hersey Hawkins is your two, Detlef Shrimp, uh, your four, Sam Perkins your three. I don't know why I went backwards there. Why I went backwards there. Uh, Sean Kemp is your five, and then after that, it gets a little suspect because you're talking about uh, Nate McMillan. Good you know, great six man. You know, gray six man come off your bench, or you might have him start so you could stagger the Hersey Hawkins minutes so he could come in. This way, you have some scoring punch off the bench. You know, this way you have like uh some some little a little bit of balance there because you need you know him to play maybe the the Lou well, Williams role. To your point about the depth, that's why that's why Detlef Shrimp was playing thirty five minutes a game. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and Gary the, Payne was playing thirty nine because yeah. his his backup point guard was essentially Eric Snow, who. Only played 43 games that year, averaged nine minutes a game. Eric Snow, by the way, is your backup point guard in this era. You probably play him a few more minutes. And I know he wasn't Eric Snow of like 1999, 2000, 2001 yet with Allen Iverson winning, what was it, six man of the year. But young Eric Snow, you know, you'll probably play him a little bit more. And, you know, maybe he's a better version of his 1995, 1996 self, whatever that looks like. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Always fascinating looking at this. All right. So we did this back. To the Future Volume 1, not to be confused with the great movie. Um, it is but shout the out first, to them, though. Shout out to them. The first the first two movies. The third one is... No. <laughs> not, no. I like to forget that ever happened. Kind of like Nostradamus. Um, <laughs> but no, we, we're going to do more of these. We find these interesting, fun. Let us know what you think. Yes. Uh, share us your ideas on social media. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, we also recommendations. We'll recommendations. take recommendations. Yeah, we'll yeah. take recommendations for who you think we should talk about, what teams, what players you think we should talk about next. But we're going to continue to do these because these are fun, uh, along with our face-off player A versus player B segments as well, too. So we'll have more of that coming up. But for volume one of the Back to the Future episode, 
of the Ain't Hard Tell podcast. Uh, this is a wrap on this for Brian Fonseca. I'm Dexter sure. Henry. Until next time, y'all. Peace. Mm-hmm.